0: Okay, so I guess we'll get started. So, um, hello and welcome to Idaho Comics with Albert Asker. Every month I have the privilege of interviewing a different personality related to comic books in Idaho. And this month I'm joined by an artist and writer who has worked for Marvel, DC, and Dark Horse Comics. His creator-owned series, Trekker, features a space-age bounty hunter named Mercy St. Clair and is available to check out for free at trekkercomic.com. Please join me in welcoming the rambunctious and remarkable Ron Randall. Hi, Ron. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming. So that is our, that's our boilerplate um, intro to the show, um, so I don't want to come off as like a liar. You Why don't you, you tell us a little bit about yourself? You're not really actually from Idaho. No, I'm from Oregon, from Portland, okay. yeah. Okay. Well, that's close enough. And so, <laughs> yeah, for, for everyone that's listening uh, here at home, uh, this is uh, another one of our live broadcasts that we're doing here at the Bordertown Comic Con in Ontario and uh so yeah again it's like it's it's odd to say like hey we're doing we're doing our idaho podcast from oregon you know we keep doing it this is like i think this is like our third one that we've done here so uh it's kind of embarrassing from that standpoint um but ron uh just uh why don't you give us a quick um uh intro tell us a little bit about yourself
1: wow okay uh born and raised in portland oregon and uh when i was a kid i fell in love with comic books and uh uh always you know started drawing my own characters when i was in grade school and just basically never stopped even though i had no plan or even really serious thought about gee i i know how i can be a comic book artist that Mm -hmm. was like saying you want to be the president of the united states or Mm -hmm. an astronaut or something right um but eventually when i was in college and studying art and literature because i wanted to do comic books Uh (laughs) so i was a double major um, but then I heard about the Cubert School um, right. that was starting up in, in New Jersey then. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, to make a long story really short, I applied and got in. And the next thing I know, I'm standing in the middle of New Jersey saying, I guess I'm serious about this <laughs> thing because here I am. <laughs> but uh, Joe Kubert. um uh, had been one of my my art heroes when I was a kid. Right. I, I loved uh, – well, I, I liked his stuff on Sergeant Rock right. and uh, yeah. NMEA stuff, but I loved his Tarzan. Uh, oh, my God. I know, right? Yes. That he did uh, – he adapted the first few Burroughs novels in, like, 72. Right. And this is for DC Comics, isn't yeah, it, Yeah, right? for DC. Uh-huh. Um, Joe was uh, a <laughs> – he was a pretty big deal. He could sort of call his shots, I think, there. Mm-hmm. He, he always loved Tarzan, so mm-hmm. – um, which I found out years later because I didn't know him at the time, of course. But mm-hmm. uh, I discovered those comics uh, on the on the spinner racks in mm-hmm. Portland, and they were just so vivid. And I'd, I'd read the novels when I was a young guy, oh, yeah. and uh, his interpretation of them just seemed so. Um, they they captured the spirit of the books so well, and mm-hmm. they were they were feral and animal and mm-hmm. primitive in a way, but also really sophisticated. And mm-hmm. uh, and I, I just. Uh, I just love that stuff so much. So then a few years later when I'm, like I said, I was in college and uh, heard he was starting a school, I said, man, if I could study with that dude, that would yeah. be pretty awesome. Because, so, you know. I mean,
0: he, how long how long had, had he been in comics? I mean, he started in, in uh, as like a, I think he started drawing professionally he was about
1: 17 years old mm-hmm. during World War II, drawing Hawkman comics, right. The Flash, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, worked steadily in comics ever since. In, yeah. uh, I think it was the 1950s he created um, Tor. Oh which yeah, was like uh-huh. a caveman sort of, and I think it was like a, there was some three D comics back in the fifties. Mm-hmm. There sure. was a brief flirtation with three D comics, mm-hmm. and Joe did one of the first one of those. So he was always kind of an innovator in, in a lot of ways, but just a great, immaculate storyteller. The oh, guy yeah. knew how to compose a panel and how to sequence panels. To uh, Joe would like want to grab you by the lapels and pull you into his comic books. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of compelling storytelling. And uh, when I went to his school, that was that was one of the things that that. That I think we graduated with, and was maybe the the best single gift he gave gave to the kids at that school. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we learned a lot about drawing from him and the other s- instructors there about you know construction and anatomy and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But what Joe conveyed, and I think what kept fueling him for the entire length of his really long and amazingly you know um, illustrative career, mm-hmm. was a passion for storytelling. Because mm-hmm. if you're just interested in solving the story you know technical you know con- problems of drawing construction and perspective and stuff you'll get to the point where you sort of i think sort of you can sort of top out on that stuff mm. but every time you get a script uh with a new story to tell it's a new fascinating set of sort of problems to solve sure and and you're just you're trying to communicate and and for joe that never got old and for me it doesn't get old either there's always how can I tell the story a little bit differently, a little bit better, a little bit more vividly
0: than the, than the last time I had to draw a sequence of you know, of a similar sort or something? Yeah, yeah that's amazing. Yeah, I, I was... Uh, so, again, for those of who are uh, at home, like, uh, Ron was on a panel just uh, right before we start we set up for the recording with uh, Jacob Baer, and he mentioned that... So you were with... You were uh, the second graduating class from right. the Joe Cooper uh, Art School, School mm-hmm. of Art. That's amazing. Yeah, you're like this continuation from... Uh, literally, the golden age of comic books. That's incredible to me.
1: Yeah, it, um, it was pretty amazing. Um, like I said, I, I knew at the time
0: I was lucky, but years later, you look back on it and say, I was really lucky. I didn't know how lucky I It's amazing, <laughs> yeah. You think back, like with the perspective of time, you're like, oh my God, this is like one of the, literally one of the all time greats. And I was yeah. able, you were lucky enough to study with him. That's an absolutely and, incredible. Right. And not only was he a great and gifted artist and storyteller and
1: craftsperson, But he was also, and this is why he started a school, I'm sure. Joe was also a great and passionate teacher. And Mm -hmm. um, he and the other, back when the school started, it was, you know, Joe started and he invited some of his friends and colleagues who had a lot of years of professional experience working in comic books, uh, newspaper strips, Mm -hmm. and commercial art stuff. But none of them were, as far as I knew, none of them were trained, you know, as teachers. Oh, so they had these skills in them, and, and a lot of times they weren't that great at fashioning a lesson plan and doing a uh, presentation for you, mm-hmm. but you would get assignments, and they'd walk around and come up to your table, and you could say... I'd say to Tex Blaisdell, who was a comic book inker who'd been inking comic books mm-hmm. since the 40s, or whatever, too. And I'd say, hey, Tex, I'm having trouble figuring how to get my brush to suggest a bunch of leaves on a tree. Oh, OK. And, say, oh, oh, you and he'd take the, <laughs> take the brush out of my hand and bop, bop, bop. And I could see with my own eyes this guy who'd been drawing comic books for 30 years or whatever, right. just like going on autopilot, just boom, boom, boom. And in a few effortless strokes, he evoked you know, a line of trees or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, Oh, the scales fall from your eyes, and those little moments of revelation would happen all the time. And Joe was also great, you know, especially working one on one about Mm -hmm. articulating articulating different things about storytelling, and um, so it was, it was just, it was.
0: It was a, a great blessing. To, I was just in the right place at the right time That's to find amazing. out was the school. Yeah. So mm-hmm. like when you, so you went to high school in Portland and you, yeah. and you where did you go to school? You said you studied literature and art. Is that right, art? Yeah,
1: high school in Portland, and then I went to a, a, a um, liberal arts uh, college in Portland too, mm-hmm. called Lewis and Clark. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Lewis and Clark College. Right, and right. I uh, again double majored in art and
0: and literature. Um, because so, Joe, I, so Joe Kerber, that was kind of your grad school, I guess. Your, yeah, your or my
1: graduate. grad school or my uh, trade school or whatever. Sure. Um, uh-huh. Because uh, I was at uh, Lewis and Clark, and uh, I just loved the academic life. i take classes in poetry and mm-hmm. do, you know, Painting classes in the evenings, and I, th- I just love this 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 college <laughs> lifestyle. And I could sit underneath a tree and, mm. and the sunshine. <laughs> there was a beautiful lawn at Lewis and Clark College, uh-huh. and I said, "This is awesome. I'm going to graduate in two years, and I'll starve to death because mm-hmm. I have no employable skills." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's when I heard about the Cubitt School. So I mm-hmm. just heard about the right time, and I said, "Ah, oh, maybe I won't have to starve mm-hmm. to death if I can figure out a way to get into this thing." <laughs>
0: so did so did Joe? Was he so he was very hands on. I mean, you worked with him like every day, like at the at the school and everything. Or did?
1: Um, yeah, he was one of the teachers or I don't know, four or five teachers that we would have uh, over the course of a semester or a year. Um, and it was a two-year program when I went. It's now a mm-hmm. three-year program. But I always say that, that my third year at the Kubert School mm-hmm. was the, the year after I graduated because uh, our graduating class, uh, Joe um, would select some of us that seemed like the, we were the most um, most inclined to go in towards comics and sure. seemed to have some potential or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he was editing the Sergeant Rock comic at the time. Right. And back then, in the late 70s through the earlier mid 80s, um, DC had a lot of books that would have backup stories in them. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, right, yeah. And so Joe would have these scripts that were maybe two to four or five pages long, mm-hmm. a backup story that was gonna appear in the book that he was the editor on, so what he said goes. Mm-hmm. So um, he yeah. so would give some of these graduating students like a little story to do of one of the characters from Easy company. That's amazing. And um, what was fantastic about it is, um, he would give me the script, Mm -hmm. uh, and I would take it to my house, and I'd work on my thumbnails—the little basic, really rough sketches for how I was planning out the different pages. Uh And then I'd call up Joe. Joe, I got the—I got my thumbnails ready. Okay, Ron, um, come over after dinner tonight at seven. Mm -hmm. So I'd get in my car and I'd drive over to Joe Kubert's house. Mm Climb up the stairs and go into Joe Kubert's studio. Wow! (laughs) Sit down at Joe Kubert's drawing board with this guy, right, elbow to elbow, and I would show him my pages, and then he'd take out a pencil and he'd look at what I'd done, Uh and he'd take out another piece of paper, and he'd say, "That's not bad, but but how about this?" And he would like do two or three other thumbnail sketches of that Mm -hmm. same panel that I had drawn. They were all fifty thousand times better than my idea. And he wasn't doing it to show off or to make me feel bad. He was just saying. There's a story here. Here's some better ways to to tell to tell that story, and not mm-hmm. here's the one right way to do
0: it. See, but you could try it this way, or this way, or this way. So he was yeah. continuing
1: to just unlock doors and uh-huh. open up my mind to uh, to make the story as vivid as possible. That's
0: a very good sign of a, of a good teacher like that to, sh- to show you like multiple examples. Yeah, he was
1: incredibly generous and such a master. And, yeah,
0: uh, incredible. So, uh,
1: and every stage <laughs> of the job, I for the, the thumbnails, the rough mm-hmm. planning thing, and then I would take those home and, and do the same thing when I had the pencils done mm-hmm. and then when I had the the lettering done and mm-hmm. then the inking. And Joe was just... It was like the the, the master-apprentice relationship. Right. You're working one-on-one with this guy. That mm-hmm. was the real QBIT school education yeah. I had. It was after the, the, the formal school period had ended, but that was sort of like my finishing school or whatever you want to call yeah. it. And he yeah. um, gave me a lot of the raw tools that I then had to spend several years... Learning how to really internalize all the stuff that Joe had sort of like info dumped on me mm-hmm. over the course of a year, um, and gradually learning how to um, how, how to refine that stuff and sort of make it into my own version of that. In a way, I had to be I had to recover from the school mm-hmm. because Joe was such. I mean, he was a I get emotional about it because Joe was an awesome teacher and he was an awesome man. He was yeah. a great role model for all mm-hmm. of us because he was just a really good guy. Um, right. And he was no affectation. He wasn't showing off. He didn't have a—that's amazing. Yeah, uh, he was he didn't have a real ego about it. He just—he you know, was having a great time, and he loved mm-hmm. working with these kids. It was just an amazing thing. Um, but also, he's just this large personality, mm-hmm. and and a and a powerful, distinctive drawing style. Mm-hmm. And 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 so I came out of there, and most of us did drawing to a certain extent. You know, like Joe taught us to draw. Mm-hmm. And that's not how I draw. My personality and, and my taste in comics included Joe, but I had a lot of other stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And so it took me several years where there was like this sort of push and pull going on with me, but between different art styles that I liked and trying to distill that all down into who I was. It's basically the same process you go through as a human being, Sure. going through adolescence and you're trying to be this person and that person, your best buddy or the wise cracking neighbor next door. Right. And after a while, you've, you've See the things that are really parts of who really seem to be you. Mm-hmm. And the other stuff is interesting, but not really you. And mm-hmm. that's an affectation you tried for a while. And you sort of try to shed that stuff off. Mm-hmm. And I'm a slow learner,
0: so it took me a lot longer than it t- took some of the other guys at the school to figure that out. That's cool. Like, well, like you were talking about like some of the other people that like, influenced you. Like, who were some of your other influence outside well, of Joe? the show? First, well, the first one that, that always <clears throat> comes to mind is, is Al
1: Williamson. Oh, yes. Um, uh-huh. When I was a little kid, and you could go to the the local candy shop and Mm -hmm. there'd be a rack of comic books there Mm -hmm. and I'd always go there and get the latest copy of Superman and whatever Mm -hmm. was drawn by somebody like Kurt Swan and a little bit later there'd be some Marvel comics showed up and I'd get, I remember seeing Captain America number one and Iron Man number one with Gene Colan and and of course Kirby and those guys. It was all cool, awesome comics and then one day I went in there (coughs) and there was a comic book cover that I'd never seen anything like this before. Mm -hmm. It was just, it was a guy and he had on this light blue like jacket and tight white pants, and the most amazingly drawn leather boots I'd ever seen in my mm-hmm. life. And he was holding like it's Reagan, an old corny sort of 1950s right. yeah. science fiction style yeah. Reagan at us. And I had never seen a drawing like that in my life. He was so realistically drawn and so vividly drawn, and he wasn't overblown and muscular. He didn't mm-hmm. have any of the superhero dynamics going on, mm-hmm. but it was breathtaking. Yeah. And I pulled that comp comic off the stand and open up the page and there's flash gordon and dale and dr zarkov wading through a swamp with oh, vines yeah. and creepers hanging down from and mm-hmm. little forest creatures scurrying across the branches it mm-hmm. was it was just lush and gorgeous and i i was transported mm-hmm. and i said i want to be that guy yeah he's you know, a I beautiful be art amazing
0: yeah. artist i was introduced to him like you know we didn't we didn't I was like that was way before my time but I did get like a old actually I think it was here in Ontario like we drove out here for something and went to like a a secondhand store and they had like a little not a big little book but like a little digest book that Mm -hmm. had like a a whole bunch of old uh uh, Williamson uh Flash Gordon stories and, and stuff and it was just an amazing artist and the 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 very first time that I was introduced to him he, like in the like in the end of the 80s, they hired him, I don't know if you remember this, they hired him to uh, ink uh, Kurt Swann's pencils for Superman. For a Superman issue. Yep. Oh my yep. God, a beautiful, beautiful mm-hmm. artwork, just amazing. Yeah, I, uh,
1: that was when I first saw how much Alex Raymond there was in Kurt Swann's work. Yeah, yeah. Um, because Swan's work had was often pushed to be more sort of that s- that sleek and sort of muscular superhero-y stuff, mm-hmm. and Al brought the elegance back to it mm-hmm. that I think Kurt Swan's pencils always had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. And That's years amazing. later, I got I was inked by Al Williamson myself. No, are you yeah, serious? Really? I was, I, in the um, early '90s. I was doing a run um, when Marvel Comics for a few years. They had the um, the rights to the the Star Trek franchise. Oh. And I worked on a book called Star Trek Unlimited, and I do the Star Trek: The Next Generation uh, stories in that. Oh my
0: God, that's and, amazing!
1: And Al Williams and Al and Williamson inked my work. Talk about a surreal experience. Oh, <laughs> that
0: would be yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. that's inc- so. This is back in nineteen ninety six. Ninety six, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. That's really incredible. Yeah, yeah he was an incredible <laughs> artist. Yeah, and I did get to meet him a couple
1: of times mm-hmm. uh, when I was living. Uh, back east because he uh-huh. lived in uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, oh, so okay. I got to go up with some other guys at the school that knew him and were doing some work with him. and uh, uh-huh. uh, A great guy, real character, and again, uh, sort of like Joe in that he was just warm and generous and just just an authentic guy. Just you know, That's no cool. no airs, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, a great guy and uh, it was just a real pleasure. Yeah.
0: That's amazing! <laughs> wow, I, that, we're gonna have a like a lot of great stuff to go through here in this interview. Um, so you stayed out mm-hmm. there on the East Coast, like after you graduated from uh, the art school.
1: Yeah, I stayed out there, um, and uh, I, I stayed out there long enough to. My, my goal was to sort of get established well enough in the in the working for DC and Marvel because mm-hmm. that was pretty much the the only game in town back then. Right. Um, if I could, I want to get established well enough that I I could then afford to move back to to Oregon because mm-hmm. I love my. I love my home state, right? Um, and uh, and then work long distance. And mm-hmm. this was before the internet. This is, I right. mean, uh, Federal Express was just coming in, and I moved back just when fax machines were becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. And I just could not get my brain wrapped around the idea oh, yeah. of taking a piece of art and shoving it through a f- telephone line, right? And it shows <laughs> up like magic, you know, three thousand miles away. But right. that that was happening, mm-hmm. um, and it worked out well enough that by the time uh, about five years had passed. Uh, I was uh, working on a regular monthly book for DC Comics. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this was? The Warlord the, the Warlord. the Warlord, okay. Yeah, I'd done uh, some backup stories and some miniseries and stuff. And um, then I got uh, the regular, and I'd drawn to mm-hmm. too. The Son of, of Stone. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, it was when I was, I just got the, the Warlord monthly gig was mm-hmm. when I, when I move back to Oregon, okay, I guess I can I can make this work long distance. Mm-hmm.
0: You can see you can see a lot of those influences of like all those different like like uh, Warlord and and kind of like the that Mike style like with Trekker, too. Is that would you say that was he was kind of an influence like on. Uh, your well, character. Mike is a
1: great guy, mm-hmm. and I, I like him, but uh, usually uh, this, is another, this happens once in a while. Someone says, oh, you must be influenced by somebody. I said, no, Mike and I were both in, influenced by Neil Adams. Like everybody, oh, that's, yeah. Everybody okay. was breathing and, and had anything to do with comics mm-hmm. uh, in the early to mid-'70s. Uh, Neil Adams hit like a meteor mm-hmm. and just changed the rules mm-hmm. in the same way that I would say Alan Moore did about a decade yeah. later mm-hmm. um, uh, with the writing. Mm-hmm. Um so I think uh, Grell and I both um, learned a lot from Neil Adams, mm-hmm. who learned a lot from Joe, mm-hmm. um, and Mike re- remains uh, one of the one of the sleekest storytellers. Uh, oh yeah. Who, who's who's uh, and so
0: you know I, I think he and I both learned a lot from those guys. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up uh, Alan Moore. So I I I, uh, I brought a couple of uh, issues, old issues of uh, Swamp Thing, <laughs> that I wanted you to autograph for me after this. And um, of course, that that series, that these are, these series were uh, um, written by Alan Moore. Mm-hmm. So, what what was that like? What was it like? Um, you know, interpreting like uh, Alan Moore's script. Um, Do you remember that? I mean, this oh, is a while yeah, ago now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, easy as falling off a log comes
1: to mm-hmm. mind um, for a few reasons. Uh, I got to be working on Swamp Thing because a couple of the guys that had gone to the Kubert School with oh. were the were the with the art team on the book, mm-hmm. um, Steve Bassett and John Talibin. Uh-huh. And these were guys that I hung out with at the school, and we'd go to parties, mm-hmm. and we all worked right again under Joe's direct tutelage. So we had a lot of similar sensibilities. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were both completely different artists than I was in some ways, mm-hmm. but I knew them, um, and, and I could sort of sort of get. Close enough to their ball f- parts sure. that um, that I could you know pinch hit on mm-hmm. when there would be a deadline uh, problem for an issue one issue I'd be like penciling five pages because right. Steve couldn't get them done in time mm-hmm. the next issue I'd be inking five pages because John didn't have time to do it mm-hmm. so I was I was sort of like a utility player mm-hmm. in baseball mm-hmm. where they uh, Karen Berger the editor would sort of plug me in mm-hmm. um, as needed and then one one time and one time only I got mm-hmm. to do a a story uh, all on my own um, yes. I to pencil linked the whole thing based on Alan's script and which, no, which issue was this? Um, I think it was issue 32. It was called abandoned houses. And it, oh, was, okay, yes. it was basically uh-huh. a sort of a last minute fill in issue. So they took the original, um, swamp thing story that mm-hmm. was done by, uh, Wrightson and, and, Ween mm-hmm. And, uh, they sandwiched that with, uh, with a framing sequence and an mm-hmm. end sequence. That was the, the sequence that I drew. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, the thing about,
0: uh, Alan's this is this is the one with uh, uh, the House of Mystery and the House Yes, of, I didn't bring that one. I'm so upset that I forgot to bring that one. Well, we'll have to meet again. Uh, oh, we'll have to. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's one. That's one of my favorite ones. I love that. It was a great story, and, yeah. and the, Alan had it,
1: a lot of things have been said about Alan Moore's uh, script. But for those who may not know, Alan is sort of legendary for writing scripts that were massively long even for short stories because his panel descriptions were just huge Mm -hmm. blocks of text Mm -hmm. and any other writer I've worked with uh, where the script is like that it's just an onerous task Mm -hmm. because they you get the sense that you're being dictated to. Mm-hmm. Like you're the little art monkey, mm-hmm. and they have this story, and this has to be in it, and this, and this, and this, and this. Mm-hmm. And you're just being given orders. Mm-hmm. Like, like the, the captain is telling you what you have to do. Mm-hmm. You know, Clean your rifle. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Mop up <out> the latrines. <laughs> um, but with Alan, all of that information and description was all given in the spirit of here's this really cool story, I think, and here are some things that could make it a cool story, mm-hmm. but... And this is the important part. Oh. These are just my thoughts. If you have any other ideas, what we're going for is X sort of an effect. Mm-hmm. And however we can get there is perfectly fine with me. Mm-hmm. I think maybe a down shot would be cool with some shadows on the walls or whatever. But I'm just thinking of this impression of creepiness. So how, can you, how do you want to make it creepy? Mm-hmm. So I, I, was, I felt like I was invited into the conversation and the creative process with mm-hmm. a guy who absolutely respected and trusted my visual storytelling skills, mm-hmm. even though he was super strong in those himself, mm-hmm. so it just felt comfortable. I, I could read his descriptions. I was excited. His his ideas were almost always really fun mm-hmm. and on point, mm-hmm. and had a good reason to be there. Um, so it was very vivid what he was after, and I almost always agreed with it. Once in a while, I might have tweaked a tweaked a thing a little bit here or there because I had an idea of my own. But basically, it was a he was a vivid, vivid visual storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I knew why everything in the
0: story was in the story. Mm-hmm. And that
1: isn't always the case. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, so who are th- who are some of the other bigger writers that you've worked with? You've also worked, I think, if I'm I hope I'm remembering this correctly, uh, Kurt Busiak as well, right? Yeah, I've worked with Kurt. Uh-huh. Not as often as I would like to, but uh-huh. we did a few books for Image
1: um, for a, a series that didn't last too long called The Regulators. Mm-hmm. Um, worked on a Thunderbolts uh oh, okay short yeah. story with him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: um, did you do Astro City, too? Didn't you do...
1: And I just did, thank you, yeah, I just did a couple of issues of Astro City mm-hmm. that featured the Jack in the Box, yeah, which is one awesome. of my favorite yeah, characters he's in that awesome. series. Yeah. And I just think Astro City is just a, a miracle of superhero yeah. comics. It's been going on so steadily and at such a high level of craft mm-hmm. uh, for so long. And it, that's, that's a case, kind of like with me with Trekker, where Kurt, um, working with his collaborator, whose name is escaping me right now, um, mm-hmm but they just uh, just built this their universe from the ground up mm-hmm. and um, and have continued to sustain it and expand it and mm-hmm. and it just gets more vivid and, and rich uh,
0: as time goes on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so um, I'm going to ask you a question. This is one that was asked before in the previous panel. I hope you don't mind us getting it recorded to but like how did you get into comic books like when you were a kid? Like how, what was the thing that really influenced you to uh, kind of get into comics? Wow. Um, well when I was a kid,
1: comic books were ubiquitous. They mm-hmm. were, you'd go to a store and you'd come back with a candy bar and a comic book. Right. And, and you just took them for granted. Yeah. And that would be, a, like I was saying, at the like a Mighty Mouse comic book or, or classics illustrated with Robin Hood. Were wow, uh, yeah. some of the ones I remember mm-hmm. reading when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. Um, the light bulb for me went off when I was in like second or third grade and I made friends with a classmate. And one day we were over this. Over to his house, and uh, he had there was this room with a table that had stacks of comic books on it. Oh, uh-huh. uh, because his dad had been in the comic books, and and he had sorted and categorized them uh-huh. by different companies and most importantly by different creators. Uh-huh. He had Carl Barks' you know, Uncle yeah, Scooge comics. Uh-huh. And uh, it sounds kind of really dumb or obvious to say it, but it hadn't occurred to me that people made <laughs> these things. Right, exactly. That somebody's job was to draw comic books mm-hmm. for a living. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, I just sort of, they, like something would spit out of a vending machine like a candy bar. Sure. and all, Here's a bunch of comic books on the rack. Mm-hmm. It was just a co- commodity that you bought. But it, right. So for some crazy reason, I was a little kid, you know, but I thought, wow, somebody does that for a living. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and I don't know why, but I just thought, that sounds like a cool thing. And mm-hmm. uh, so that just lodged in my brain uh, and never left. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so then... Um, as I continued to read comic books, I would see ones that would inspire me, and I'd say, "Oh, I want to do that, and I think I could do that." And again, like I said, f- Flash Gordon number five from Boy, yeah. Key, from King Comics.
0: Um, that oh, was this is uh, King Features Comics, is that? Yeah, what it I think is? so. and okay. it,
1: it, they, they re I think they republished it or as uh, as, as
0: King, as, yeah, as
1: King. Okay. Um, no, no, it was it was an original comic for King, but I think then the Gold Key I think took it over. It oh, okay, King, I Gold see what King. you're saying. Yeah, yeah, huh. But that was the comic book that just sort of crystallized everything for me. And, and not saying, gee, it might be kind of cool to do comic books, but I want to be that guy doing that comic book. Was mm-hmm. the,
0: that, was a, that was a profound moment mm-hmm. <laughs> for young Ron Randall. Right. That's really cool. <laughs> so uh, what about Trekker? Now, this is your uh, creator-owned comic. This is, uh, this is your baby. Yeah. Um, this one got started, this is like in the, if I'm remembering correctly, this like in the late 80s. Yeah, this got its it start in uh, Dark Horse Comics presents. Is that right? <laughs> Am I remember? Okay. Um, so how did that come about? Like, what 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 made you decide to do uh, this character?
1: Um, I, so it was another right place, right time situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had recently. I just moved back to uh, Oregon from the East Coast, thinking, well, I'm moving 3,000 miles away from the comic industry. Because mm-hmm. this is like summer of 85 was when I moved back. Okay. And still then, it was Marvel in D.C., yep, middle of Manhattan.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and uh, But it just so happened that when I moved back was right at the time when the direct sales market was coming mm-hmm. in, which meant that uh, smaller companies could start up shop and not be restricted to the newsstand distribution system. This is a little bit of comics obscure history but oh this is good yeah, yeah um, Marvel and DC pretty much had had a lock on getting their comic books distributed to newsstands sure. and and the, the candy corner candy stores mm-hmm. I was talking about mm-hmm. um, so if you were another publisher it was really really hard to break into that
0: mm-hmm.
1: so like Tower Comics they did Thunder Agents in the 60s oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, would would try that but just couldn't get traction mm-hmm. uh, couldn't get seen very much but with the advent of the direct sales market mm-hmm. um a dude or a, a woman could open up a comic book shop in town uh-huh. and get comics directly to them, and anyway, just changed the way that comics could get out to people. Uh-huh. And so, a lot of little comic book companies were were starting to come out at that time, uh-huh. um, and they were usually cheap, you know, to print black and white comics. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, so I'm in Portland, Oregon. I'm at a little comic book convention. I'm working on my regular, <coughs> you know, monthly. Warlord, comic book for DC. Uh-huh. I was kind of like the engine was purring along pretty good. I was doing sure. uh, a good job there, a good book there. Um, and these two tall guys came up to me and introduced himself to my table and said they were starting a, a little comic book company right there in my hometown. Uh-huh. What are the chances, right? Right. Um, and they wanted to get some established professionals uh, to work for their little company, which uh-huh. is a very smart idea because, sure. like I say, a lot of little companies were starting around then. And I think they thought, you know, this is a way to sort of maybe set themselves a little bit apart from the herd. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm thinking to myself,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm working for DC Comics. Yeah. Who are these guys? <laughs> you know, they're probably going to, you know, put out a comic book or two and then just, you know, they could vanish in a puff of smoke. Who mm-hmm. knows, you know? Sure. But they were, they were persuasive guys and, mm-hmm. uh, and good guys. And um, they were Mike Richardson and Randy Stradley. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mike yep. Richardson, the publisher of Dark Horse Comics. Sure. Um, but I was reluctant, you know. But, but he – either I don't remember which of them said this, the fatal sentence. But mm-hmm. one of them said to me, if you come and work for us, we will pay you your rate and you can do whatever you want. Oh. And I said to myself, I will never hear that sentence again in my life. Yeah. And I was right. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I said, well, if I do want to take the risk and leave this – my steady gig at DC mm-hmm. Comics – it's it's got to be worth it. So that means I've got to come up with my dream project. What's the one comic book series that I would want to mm-hmm. write and draw? <laughs> the hill I'd be willing to die on, so to speak. Sure. And uh, and I was re- reluctant and I was sort of cautious about it, but I I couldn't stop thinking about that and trying mm-hmm. to answer that question. And uh, eventually, I dreamed up. Dreamed Up Trekker, which uh, what I wanted to do was, I wanted to do science fiction. Why? Flash Gordon. And right. I, I wanted to be able to draw in a style of characters who weren't superheroes flying around, but oh, okay. had some of that grace and elegance and a certain heightened realism but still realistic sort of stuff sure. that Williamson did. Mm-hmm. And I loved besides Flash Gordon, I loved Star Wars, and I, I read the Dune Trilogy and mm-hmm. the Foundation Trilogy, and I loved Blade Runner and Aliens. There's a whole bunch of different aspects of science uh, fiction that just seem to unlock a lot of my Creative chambers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I drawn um, I had drawn a backup for DC called The Barren Earth, who was written by a great oh, guy right. named Gary Cohn. Uh-huh. And that was also, uh, this is a couple years earlier, mm-hmm. and the science fiction had a, a woman lead character. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very Edgar Rice Burroughs in the mm-hmm. field. But I, I loved that, and, and I loved having a woman lead character who was driving the story. Mm-hmm. And that was a rare thing to come across in comics. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just. I'd drawn plenty of comics where there was uh, women characters, but they tend to be the sidekicks, sometimes the eye candy or the mm-hmm. love interest. And I was kind of enjoying the idea about having the, having a woman character be front and center, mm-hmm. especially I had the idea to make it a series about a, a bounty hunter sort of immersed in a, steeped in a world of grittiness and violence and, mm-hmm. and see if I could have that character evolve and change over the course of the series, being affected by their choices and actions, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I thought having a female character in that role seemed like a kind of a fresh idea to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the idea I pitched t- to Dark Horse. I designed the character and came up with a look that I thought was kind of cool and distinctive and sort of realistic and believable uh-huh. and, uh, and a premise and an approach that I thought I wouldn't have to apologize for uh-huh. <laughs> to to women readers or the, the women in my in my own circle and yeah. uh, would be a cool fun comic book that I wouldn't get tired of writing and drawing for uh-huh. a long time. Uh, so that's what that's what I pitched to Dark Horse and they might have said this is a a, a really neat sounding idea ron but we don't know how to sell a comic like that right but they didn't mm-hmm. uh they were probably a little bit young and naive too but they
0: just said that sounds cool do it and then mm-hmm. i had to figure mm-hmm. out how to do it that's <laughs> really cool yeah because that especially during that time it's like that's not unheard of i guess but it was definitely a lot less of that like female lead driven stories like that
1: yeah there were a few around mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> evangeline was one that came i think first comics mm-hmm. oh yeah time. Uh-huh. But there weren't very many of them. And the other thing about Trekker was, I mean, she was fully clothed. She mm-hmm. didn't wear high-heeled shoes. She didn't have cleavage and stuff, because she was going to be out chasing down, like, you know, mass murderers that the police couldn't get or right, something. Exactly. And like I said, I had I had to create a story that I could believe in, or I would get tired of it mm-hmm. too early. So I had to make it something that, that, for that where it checked through, it passed my, <laughs> my believability or mm-hmm. credibility check. So, um, like, it wasn't a particularly, you know, commercial approach at the time, mm-hmm. uh, but uh I was only trying to make, uh, answer the question of what's the series that I want to draw, and so mm-hmm. that's, that's what I came up with, The Trekker, and it, it uh, found, I think, what I would describe as a, a strong and enthusiastic audience, just not a really, really large one, mm-hmm. so it sort of struggled to, to to keep it supported well enough, so finally I had to um, set it aside and do other stuff for a living, uh, but always knew that I had a life journey I was trying to tell, and so my sure. intention was always to get back to Trekker when I could, so... Mm-hmm. A few years ago, I realized a oh, way to make that happen. So mm-hmm. that's what I'm doing now
0: mm-hmm. did you did you find it was um a challenge for you to write a female character? I mean, I have often I often wonder that about uh, authors where they're like, okay, I'm going to write about let's say I, i'm a, this black character mm-hmm. or this uh, this Hispanic character, but they're you know they're white or a woman or something other than the character that they're writing. Is that a challenge for you, especially since this is the lead character for your book?
1: right yeah, I mean uh, when i when I came up with the series i I felt it was taking a risk. I was I was sure. o- opening myself up to a, the possibility of a lot of you know <laughs> a lot of slapping, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which would have been totally justified if I didn't do a good job at mm-hmm. it. Um, all I had going for me is that there were a few models uh, in popular culture that I that I could crib from, and I had some pretty awesome women in my own life mm-hmm. um, that I could sort of try to fashion my character and check it against some of that stuff and mm-hmm. see if it seemed to check through but largely I was just trying to write a human being that I that right. I felt had reasonable emotional responses or sometimes unreasonable emotions because mm-hmm. we're not always reasonable. but I tried sure. to make a I tried to make a character that was sort of you know somewhat flawed but 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 passionate and smart and gifted um, with some blind spots mm-hmm. largely like we all have none of us have a clue about who we are uh, especially when we're younger oh, and yeah. everybody else around to see stuff in us that we don't so I wanted that kind of a character, but mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you remember there was a there was a there was a cop show on uh, early 80s I guess called Cagney and Lacey. Isabel, oh sure, yeah. It was about uh, two uh, two New York police detectives that mm-hmm. were women, mm-hmm. and they were a great team, and they were completely different women characters. Mm-hmm. One was the the single, uh, very um, high strung or temperamental, emotional, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, blonde. Uh, Driven, obsessed cop who mm-hmm. had just disastrous relationships with people mm-hmm. and stuff, and the other was like, uh, she was a mother. Uh, she, her husband was a plumber, and mm-hmm. uh, but she was also a great, gifted cop. And these two women who were really, really different, but had great chemistry, and were you know, great cops, and mm-hmm. and it was really cool to see the two women that were just they were just playing two different types of cops. Sure. That, that were together. And um, <clears throat> so it could be done. I knew it could be done mm-hmm. by just believable human characters that had strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. and make
0: amazing stories that they were at the center of. And, mm-hmm. I, and uh, so that was a good help. <laughs> so do you, writing a character like this, did, did you, uh, how often, I, I've, I've often wondered this myself, like how often do you, do you go to uh, a female friend or your wife or uh Whoever, as like, as a female, uh, use them as a sounding board. It's like, what do you think about this? Do you think this, you know, is this believable? Is this realistic? What what would you think?
1: Um,
0: pretty often in the in the early days, especially, mm-hmm.
1: um, I bounce it off my wife, and uh, then as my daughter is now grown, oh, uh, young yeah. woman herself, uh-huh. uh, I, I do I do the same thing with her occasionally. But now I I got a pretty decent handle on it. But also when uh, when I. Um, Stopped doing Trek Through Dark Horse, and I'm mm-hmm. now um, doing it myself, and mm-hmm. I, I hire an editor for myself. Oh. And uh, I've been fortunate to have uh, a couple of incredibly gifted uh, women editors oh, cool. to okay. work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that that's feels right to me, um, mm-hmm. uh, just as a, a way to sort of, sort of check myself a little mm-hmm. bit here or there. Um, mm-hmm. And fortunately, I haven't needed too much of it. Every once in a while, they'll point out something, and I say, oh, yep, that'd be a great way to, a great different slant to take on that or something, mm-hmm. so yeah.
0: Very cool. Yeah, the thing that's cool about Trekker is that you know you you mentioned like Star or excuse me, um, Flash Gordon mm-hmm. as a uh, as an influence, but it's also there's a lot of other kind of different stories you can tell with this character because this is a character that's uh, a bounty hunter that kind of works sort of with the police but like kind of outside of the police thing, so you can kind of do like police procedurals. Like another one that I really liked was uh, oh I'm gonna remember, forget the name of the. The name of the story, but Scar's Ravine or something like that. Where uh, the, the trail to Scarman's Burn. Scarman's Burn. That's <laughs> it. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. And um, and and that was that one almost had more of a um, like an old western feel to it. Totally. You know, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, I I love westerns. And yeah. Back when I did that story, I didn't know that there was such a thing as a, a, a sub genre called you know sci fi western or something. Oh sure. Uh-huh. But uh, that was one of my favorite. Um, individual issues or stories of, mm-hmm. of the early of the first run of tracker because mm-hmm. I just felt it really uh, succeeded as a good dramatic tale that had mm-hmm. a, a, a strong through line and a great climax mm-hmm. to it. And did, uh, actually, that's yeah. that's from watching a bunch of Westerns mm-hmm. when I was a kid. So it's a it's a case where she's tracking a, a murderer through the, the blasted wastelands outside mm-hmm. of the the film noiry sort of city that that is her home base. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I wanted early on in the stories to start conveying that well, it, it starts off with stories set on the, the gritty streets, you know. Mm-hmm. You new Gelf. Yeah. Ex- Galif. That Galif? She, Is um, that how you say it? Uh, new Galef. Yeah. okay. That the the stories and the uh, the bad guys she mm-hmm. was tracking out would take her farther and farther field and then going into outer space and mm-hmm. coming back, because like I said, I wanted everything in it from, you know, um, Blade Runner, mm-hmm. uh, Crime Noir, mm-hmm. to, um, you know, crash landing on swamp planets, mm-hmm. <laughs> fighting mm-hmm. swamp creatures and... Mm-hmm. Um, so the trick was to find a find a vessel that could accommodate all those different kinds of sort of subgenres within science fiction, uh-huh. and uh, I'm hoping that uh, that the the character of of Mercy St Clair and uh, the story that the, the the sort of the internal or the personal journey that she's on is uh-huh. compelling enough to to hold together all these other and it keeps it fun that I can sort of shift the changes uh, from one issue to the next. Uh-huh. A little bit, and give the readers different settings and, and a sense of a, a
0: broad, rich universe to explore. Mm-hmm. So, in addition to Trekker, you're still doing uh, other jobs, like for DC, I, I think. Like, because uh, Future Quest was recently uh, the one that you did. Yeah,
1: yeah, I was. Uh, uh, in my career, I've often been brought in on existing projects like mm-hmm. a, like the Swamp Thing and mm-hmm. uh, Future Quest is another one that was mm-hmm. started by uh, Jeff Parker uh, the writer and I. he's a studio mate of mine right? and working with Doc Shainer and they uh, were re-envisioning uh, all those old Hanna-Barbera yeah. uh, Johnny Quest yeah. and, and Space Ghost and the Herculoids and stuff yeah. and um, they they um, I got approached by the editor to 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 step in and help out with that stuff and what a blast that oh was. yeah
0: that that looks like it was actually
1: a lot of fun. yeah those characters are some they were designed by you know alex toth and doug yeah. Whiteley, who were just oh, amazing yeah. gifted designers mm-hmm. as well as you know comic book artists of the mm-hmm. first order so you, know, you those characters they're just so well designed they're practically indestructible mm-hmm. if you if you try to get anywhere close to what those guys
0: did as the design. You're going to come up with a really cool drawing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that and, and that's a fun series too because like I, I, I liked all those old Hanna uh, Barbera cartoons, but especially the action ones. You know, like mm-hmm. Space Ghost and Johnny Quest and Johnny. Oh, especially Johnny Quest. I loved Johnny Quest. Yeah, what yeah. an amazing series that was. And
1: and the thing I think that made the series, the the, the Future Quest series, mm-hmm. work was a couple things. Uh, Doc Shaner is a great artist, yeah. and um, and, uh, and Parker uh, Jeff Parker. Um, He's done this several times. He's uh, written Batman '66. and oh, yeah. uh-huh. Wonder Woman '77. I think it uh-huh. is. Um, yep, that's and right. James Bond stuff. And he mm-hmm. has a great ear and a knack for capturing the flavor and the voices of um, of characters from these you know other media or other existing properties, mm-hmm. and evoking that and and. Revisiting it in a way that feels very familiar, but also mm-hmm. you know at the same time bounces with enough fresh yes. and new. Mm-hmm. So those 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 Johnny Quest stories felt like yeah th- that's how it would feel if those same characters were having adventures set in contemporary times. Where mm-hmm. There may be cell phones, mm-hmm. but Johnny will still sound like Johnny Quest and act like him. And mm-hmm. so it's familiar but fresh at the same time. Mm-hmm. And Jeff's uh, one of the few writers I know who I've seen really pull that stuff off, and it feels
0: like a really good story all on its own. Mm-hmm. The one character that I I, I lamented that was not included in Future Quest, I really wanted to see, well, the characters, I guess... Uh, I really wanted to see Young Samson and Goliath. Do you remember that cartoon series? Yeah, that wasn't one of the ones that I watched as avidly as the others, mm-hmm. but I told them soon. I never. used to really like that one. I mean, that was like way before my time, but it's like they used to show reruns of it over yeah. here on Boise, so <laughs> I really like that series. Yeah. Um, what are some other uh, projects that you were working like on, on outside of uh, Tracker, like some of these other ones, like uh, Future Quest? You've had some other things that you've been doing recently too.
1: Um, yeah, um, the... If you've worked long enough in comics, you'll draw just about every kind of thing. Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, a little bit before the Future Quest, I had done uh, a couple of issues of Catwoman for mm-hmm. that Convergence uh, crossover oh, sure. that DC yeah. had. Uh-huh. Um, and I'd, I'd drawn some Supergirl comics uh, some years before that, which mm-hmm. was a great fit. Uh, that was a character that I... I just had a feel for how how I would want Supergirl to be handled and mm-hmm. sort of sort of, um, almost intellect- or emotionally what, what the character felt like to mm-hmm. me. And uh, the stories I was given to draw, and the way I approached it, it just felt so natural. I wasn't second guessing myself or trying to fit into somebody else's shoes. It just felt um, felt like a good natural fit for me. Mm-hmm. So that was great. Uh, but then I, the, the last thing, the latest thing I've done for DC uh, a few months ago, I, uh, it was um, it was a it was a book called Sasquatch Detective.
0: Oh, okay, <laughs> uh,
1: which uh, was. Uh, Written by a, a woman named Brandy Stillwell, oh, okay. who also works up at D.C., but she um, had created this character, I think, sort of as a spontaneous thing during a stand-up comedy uh,
0: routine <laughs> one time.
1: And some of the D.C. people were in the audience. This is the way I hear the story, and really? they said after the so story, "Yeah, it was a great character. You should do a comic book with her. So they made it first oh, as, wow. a, as a series of backups in the um, in the Snagglepuss comic, I believe.
0: Oh, okay. And okay. when they were
1: getting ready to collect those, they wanted to a first feature that sort of told her, sort of her origin story. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's about a young woman who's a Sasquatch who decides to become a member of the Los Angeles Police Department. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's a far cry from drawing, you know, uh, Warlord or, right. or, or yeah. Supergirl. Yeah. So uh, when I was approached, uh, uh, by the editor on that I first thought I saw the character designs because well, again it was an existing property and I sure. said that's just really not deal you know, my thing but the editor said oh I think you could do a good job on this I said well I'll give it a try mm-hmm. so I did some designs and we've added them back and forth uh, a little bit and uh, so uh, I was very happy to see that very quickly we came up with something that the, the writer and the editors uh, felt you know my version mm-hmm. or interpretation of the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, was in the ballpark, so we, awesome. we, and it was a lot of fun. That's cool, yeah, um, that
0: sounds amazing. I haven't heard of that one, I'll have to check yeah. it out. Uh, when
1: you get to draw something that's that's obviously more towards the cartoony side of being mm-hmm. a cartoonist, it sort of frees you up with the, the broadness of the gestures and the expressions and emotions and the, the the body types and stuff that you can do. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, since so much of my work I try to ground it in that s- s- pseudo-reality mm-hmm. that, that the illustrators like Williamson had. Um, that giving permission—it's like being let out on
0: recess mm-hmm. to do something like this. It was much more broader, and it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we, we've talked about uh, some of your artistic uh, influences. What about like on the writing side? Like, who are like some of the writers that have influenced you? Not even necessarily with, within comic books, but like like in literature as well. Um, well, let's see. Uh, when I was a kid, I read
1: the the Doc Savage paperbacks, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, those were great. Um, and again, I read Frank Herbert's Dune, which uh, oh, yeah. uh, when I started doing Trekker, I knew um, I knew ultimately mm-hmm. I wanted this series to have that broadness of scope and scale and okay. sort of like character of destiny sort of story. Mm-hmm. I also knew that I wasn't the writer that could pull that off when I first started Trekker. Mm-hmm. So I started with sort of shorter, terse, action-adventure stories okay. that were self-contained mm-hmm. and planted some seeds in there. And mm-hmm. I thought, okay, when, I'm, when I'm, i am when I got a more firm handle on this, mm-hmm. I'll develop that stuff down the road. Mm-hmm. And... It seems to be working out pretty well but so um a lot of the i mean you know stanley when he when oh the yes drumming, of course got a lot of that yeah. that um squash buckley flair in my mm-hmm. stuff as well so some of that stuff was was there a lot of right, later you know when like i say when alan moore hit yeah man oh man it was like oh yeah we'd been waiting for that kind of
0: writing to come into comics mm-hmm. without knowing
1: that that's what we wanted to yeah. see I think at mm-hmm. least I
0: that's certainly mm-hmm. the way I, that I that's definitely how I feel too yeah, yeah. it was fantastic I mean I love I love the medium before but it seemed like it was like on steroids like after he showed up on yeah. the scene exactly yeah. I just uh, I it just raised the bar on on how you how you should write comics almost absolutely you know. yeah well so I'm glad you br- you brought up dune because that kind of ties everything all back together like you know we don't really have uh, outside of John and myself we don't have a real strong like Idaho tie to the to our Idaho show, but that's the name of one of the characters from Dune, isn't it, Dune, uh, Idaho? Duncan Idaho, Duncan, right? Idaho, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's very good. So we'll wrap it up here. Um, is there anything else that you want to uh, tell us about, or promote, or plug right before right before we sign off? Um,
1: the only thing would be just to encourage people to check out uh, the, the Trekker uh, book because when uh-huh. you're doing a, a self-published, creator-owned comic book these days, it's it's tremendously fun and rewarding, but the challenge is to to get the word out to enough people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm funding it through Kickstarters mm-hmm. and uh, I'll be funding uh, starting the next Kickstarter in mm-hmm. uh, at the end of May running through June and you can just go to trekkerkickstarter.com mm-hmm. <laughs> after uh, May 28th
0: and okay. uh, you'll see the campaign there. It runs for about 30 days. Very cool. Okay. Yeah and you know and I like the idea. It's it's very interesting. You know you, you put like all of your old uh, Trekker comic books uh, up for free on trekkercomic.com. Right. And. It, you must know about this study I know hopefully we don't go too over time but um they've they've had that study where like if you put some of your stuff out there for free, that actually um rather than like um you know, people are like, "Well, I've already read it. I don't want it, or whatever." That actually helps people like go out and actually buy your stuff. Have you, you, you? you
1: I had not heard that. Oh, but okay. I that thought was, that's why you did it, right? But. No, the reason I did it that way is I just figured we live in the digital age, and mm-hmm. if you if you want to put something out there uh, digitally, it's going to be out there, and yeah. you, you really can't control that, and it's mm-hmm. a fool's errand to try. Um, so I I, I realize there's a chance of, like you said, people will read it and say, "Well, I read it free online. I don't mm-hmm. need to do anything else." But but my I just went with the, the theory or the hope at least that yeah. um, that if I put it out there, it's a way for people to discover it. Yeah. They can sample it. They mm-hmm. see what it's about. They see there's a lot of it and hopefully they'll say, I want to experience two things. First, I want to experience the story in the format that it was intended to yes. be done, uh-huh. which is holding the physical in your hand and going yep. pages. Plus, if they like it and they want to see more of it, I've got to still eat, yeah. which means I need some of their money Yes, um, exactly. to be crass about it. Yep. Um, but uh, either buying, you know, even buying pdf digitals of it mm-hmm. through Comicsology or whatever or mm-hmm. but buying the physical books because i'm i'm i've been doing comics a long time and that's how i am the most used to interacting with the stories and when i think of Trekker stories i think of them as far as turning pages and experiencing mm-hmm. it that way so that's the way i hope a lot of people at least will experience that's, that's the way guys under- wanted us to read comics yeah books. i mean i understand there are p- i've met fans who say <clears throat> you know i've got two bedrooms full of my comic collection i can't Literally, I cannot have room for any more physical comics, so they're reading some of them mm-hmm. um, in, in digital format. And uh, most, I just want people to read the stories, but yeah. I do want them to read the stories. And if if it's possible to support me in one way or another, so sure. I can keep
0: doing them, that that'd be awesome. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it's it's counterintuitive, but that's really smart marketing. So yeah, you're probably getting you're gaining a lot of fans by. Doing I sort that.
1: of think of the website as a digital <clears throat> billboard. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so people can stumble across it online, and uh, then they can move from that to. You know, deepening their experience with Trekker. (laughs) Okay, very cool.
0: Well, I I hope you don't mind, but before we leave, I just wanted to uh, dedicate this very special episode to uh, a close personal friend and uh, a fan of the show who passed away recently. So, uh, Jr., this episode is for you. Love you, man. We miss you every day. And thank you again to Ron Randall. Uh, Remember to go out and check out uh, his uh, Trekker comic book on TrekkerComic.com and. Yeah, get out there and buy his comic books. Thank <laughs> Thanks, you again. Baby. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thanks, or, no, bad. for us having you, for <laughs> however that goes. It's, it feels great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> All right,
2: thank you again. Idaho Comics with Albert Asker is a monthly podcast recorded by Mystery House Radio and released the first Thursday of every month. Look for next month's episode on Stitcher and SoundCloud, and you can download it on iTunes by searching for Mystery House Radio. This episode was produced by John Keith. Music by Max Faith. Email your questions and comments to mysteryhouseradio at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, at MHC radio, and look for Mystery House Radio on Facebook. Albert's publishing company, Idaho Comics Group, is on Facebook, so give it a like and a follow. Tune in the first Thursday of every month to hear Idaho's unofficial comics historian interview another name in Idaho comics. Thanks for listening. And one of the great things is we don't have to worry about our five seconds of silence. Oh, that's
0: right. I guess that's true. Yeah. (laughs) And this is my water.
2: And this is my water.
0: Okay. Now that we've claimed, where's your water? Everybody, you, I, everybody's
2: got their water. Okay.
0: Everyone's claimed the water.
2: And you're at one thirty. You can roll whenever you're ready right now.
0: Okay. Do we want the, we'll leave the door open. That should be fine, right?
2: For a minute at least. Okay. Um, no if you guys have a problem hearing us, after about five minutes, you're welcome to shut the door. Okay. For that first five minutes, it's nice that it's open to let Stragglers, people know that they can yeah. straggle in. The so
0: I, think, I think we could I probably know. leave it open. I think it'll probably be all right mm <clears throat>